0: Our Father, we thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that keeps us day by day. Father, we are encouraged to know that you are with us, that it is by your Spirit that we live each day, That it is your Holy Spirit who takes the Word of God and, and brings it into our hearts and helps us to understand it and to make it a part of our, our walk and to live in accordance to it. Father, I just commit this hour to you and pray that you will bless us in our study of the word, bless us in our prayer together later on. And Father, I ask that you will, uh, your hand will be upon the uh, service this morning uh, and each class throughout uh, this complex today. And as your name is proclaimed worldwide, we ask, Father, that you will bring many into your kingdom and, Lord, that the Spirit of God will sweep over this planet and, uh, And enlarge the kingdom this day in a way that is obviously empowered by you alone. We commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will turn to the 19th chapter of Judges. As you have probably noticed, there's a lot of stuff in the book of Judges that is a little less than bedtime story reading for little children. Well, it gets worse, especially as you come to the end of the book. I'd like to read the first nine verses. We read these two weeks ago, but I'd like to read them again and continue on here. Now it came about in those days that there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim, who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem in Judah. But his concubine concubine played the harlot against him, and she went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah and was there for a period of four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak tenderly to her in order to bring her back, taking with him his servant and a pair of donkeys. So he brought her into her, she brought him into her father's house, and when the girl's father saw him, he was glad to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, detained him, and he remained with him three days. So he ate and drank and lodged there. Now it came about on the fourth day that they got up early in the morning, and he prepared to go. And the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Sustain yourself with a piece of bread, and afterward you may go. So both of them sat down and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Please be willing to spend the night, and let your heart be merry. Then the man arose to go, but his father-in-law urged him so that he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day he arose to go early in the morning, and the girl's father said, Please sustain yourself and wait until afternoon. So both of them ate. When the man arose to go along with his concubine servant, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold now, the day has drawn to a close. Please spend the night. Lo, the day is coming to an end. Spend the night here that your heart may be merry. Then tomorrow you may arise early for your journey so that you may go home. Since it's been two weeks since we looked at this passage last I'd like to point out again a couple of things that I mentioned last time about this last portion of the book of Judges. First of all, I think what we find here in it is the extent to which anarchy and depravity characterize a society that rejects the word of God. Now, of course, you can look at societies around the world that have never had the word of God. And as you look at those societies, you can see uh, they, they live at a level that most of us would never desire to live. And we, in fact, characterize these as third world countries. But you look at a country that has known the word of God and then moves away from it, and you have greater depravity than you can even imagine. And of course, we're beginning to see this in America today on, on a large scale. And if you, if you look at the history of many of the kingdoms down through time, you discover this to be true. And it was particularly true of Israel. Because God held Israel ob- obviously to a higher standard than he did everybody else. They had received the word of God. They had received the prophets of God. And God intended for them to walk in his way and to demonstrate the reality to the world of what it meant to know God. And so when they deviate from the word of God, I mean, I mean it's tragic what happens. And, and this, this last two chapters, three chapters, so illustrate how horrible it can become. It also illustrates to us the, the terrifying nature of civil war, particularly if it has a religious aspect to it. Religious civil wars are the worst kind of wars that have ever happened in history. All you have to do is go back in time, not really very far. If you go back to the early 17th century in, in Germany, what was called the 30 Years' War was a horrible war. And it was a war based on, it was a civil war that had strong religious overtones, It was a fighting between Catholics and Protestants, and and politics all got mixed in with this, and it was Germans killing Germans, and by the time that war was over, the population of Germany had been cut in half. Half the population of Germany had been wiped out. Something in the neighborhood of 10 million people were killed in that 30-year civil war. And, of course, we know about the American Civil War. Uh, More Americans died in the American Civil War than in all of the other wars that we have fought in history. Of course, on both sides, we were killing Americans. And, and we know the, the, the horrible um, actions people took to one another in, in that war. And, of course, what's happened in Rwanda in the Civil War there? I mean, terrible bloodshed. And what's happening in Sudan in the so-called religious war that's happening there? Terrifying things are happening. At this time in the history of Israel, they had degenerated. Uh, political and spiritual anarchy... And last time I read a passage, and I I think it's worth reading again, because I think it's so important to understand this, this passage in Ezekiel chapter 34. If you'll bear with me reading again, I think it's worth reading, because it really is an illustration of what happens when people of God turn away from God and from His Word. In Ezekiel chapter 34, beginning at verse 1, we read these words, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves! Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened, the diseased you have not healed, the broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill, and my flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth. And there was no one to search or seek for them. I'm reading the biography of Franklin Graham right now. And um, in this biography, he talks about uh, back when he was early in, in, in his operation of Samaritan's Purse, that one of the things he wanted to do was help the refugees from Southeast Asia. And it came to him one night that the, the complex down in, in, in uh, Guyana... Where Jonestown had been, and that whole tragedy had occurred, was abandoned. And here were all these buildings and all this place down there, which nobody was using, that maybe that would be a place to bring Southeast Asian refugees in because it would be an area much like the, the area they were coming from in Southeast Asia. And so he, he went in to uh, check that all out. And, and, and the upshot was it didn't work out because of political things. But as, as I think about that, there's a shepherd who was fleecing the sheep. You know, Jim Jones. Somebody who who destroyed the flock. And down through the history of Israel and the history of church, there have been those who have led their people away from God, those who, who lived off the sheep rather than ministering to the sheep. One of the reasons that Samuel replaced Eli as uh, judge in Israel was the fact that Eli's sons were actually preying on the worshipers themselves and were not worthy, obviously, to take over leadership a spiritual leadership in Israel. And you look down through, through it, and you know, what did Jesus say to the Pharisees of, of his day? He called them vipers. He called them whited sepulchers. Uh, obviously, they were not shepherds who were leading the sheep. They were destroying the sheep. And, and this is what we've seen through history. What's happened to the church? What's happened to mainline denominations uh, down through time? Read medieval history and, and read about how the church prayed on, on the population of Europe during those times. And, and, and the people were living in abject poverty while the high clergy were, were living like royalty. You know, the, the statement that was made or supposedly made by, <laughs> you know, why is her name? Maria Theresa's daughter. You know, the famous queen of France that said, led the, supposedly said, let them eat cake, which she probably didn't actually say. Uh, Marie Antoinette. That just illustrates an attitude. An attitude, an attitude of the, of the rich and, and the wealthy towards the poor. Well, you know, tough. That's just the way that it is. The, just, you know, sorry, but uh, we're not going to go out of our way to help them. And one of the reasons the French Revolution happened was the fact that the high clergy, as well as the high nobility, would not help with the tax burden of the state. They were going to continue to try to get blood out of the peasants, you know. To pay the, the, the taxes and as a result there was a violent revolution uh, in France. Talk about a civil war that had religious overtones. The French Revolution was one and, and millions died in, in that. And so God is saying to his people, you need to be faithful shepherds of the flock. You need to lead the people down the paths of righteousness and he will hold them accountable who do not. And that's what's happened to Israel. At the time we're talking about, Israel has no godly shepherd, and as a result, they've gone astray. Now, what we are reading about here is a Levite and his concubine. They are just simply illustrations. They are a way of understanding what happened during this time period and how degraded the society had become, because they are not even named in the account. We're not given the name of the Levite or his concubine. Of course, it's very common for the women not to be named, but he's not even named either. And he's the star of the story, you might say. He's the bad guy of the story in many ways, but not even named. So it's just a Levite, you know, here in this story. We simply have the story of a Levite from Ephraim who happened to have taken a concubine from Bethlehem. And and the passage we read seems to indicate that somehow he had acquired her without the father even uh, knowing who it was had taken his daughter to be a concubine. And that after he had her for a while, she played the harlot and because she was ashamed or or maybe afraid to go home, she fled back to her home in Bethlehem. And after four months, the Levite thought, well, you know, I forgive her, Uh, I want her back. And so he went on this journey to Bethlehem with his servant and and a pair of donkeys in order to retrieve her. And the father-in-law, we discover, is so glad to have him there that he is uh, over hospitalized but over hospitalizing him? I mean, is there such a word? <laughs> he's, he's practicing over hospitality here to this man. Oh, stay another day. It's late in the afternoon, you can't leave now. <laughs> Gets up the next morning, hey, let's let's eat, let's take her ease, let's talk. It's late in the day. Oh, it's too late for you to go now, stay overnight. And he probably could have just stayed there for the rest of his life, I suppose. But let's read on as to what happens in verse ten and following. But the man was not willing to spend the night. So he arose and departed and came to a place opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. And there were with him a pair of saddled donkeys, his concubine was also with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was almost gone, and the servant said to his master, this is the Levite servant, please come and let us turn aside into this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. However, his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners, who are not of the sons of Israel, but we will go on as far as Gibeah. And he said to his servant, Come and let us approach one of these places, and we will spend the night in Gibeah or Ramah. So they passed along and went went their way, and the sun set on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there in order to enter and lodge in Gibeah. When they entered, they sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. We don't know exactly where the Levites' home was. We're, we're talking about the area of Ephraim, as you see, is right up in, in here. Ephraim and then Manasseh was up above it. Benjamin is here. He is at Bethlehem, which is right down here. And here's Jerusalem, or Jebus, as it still was at that time. And here's Gibeah, the town that we'll be looking at in a minute, and a couple of miles north of that was Ramah. So we're we're right here in the uh, region, uh, south-central part of what would eventually become Israel. Now, how far away did the Levite live? We're not told. All we're told was that he lived in the back country of Ephraim, out-of-the-way kind of place. His home probably wasn't much more than Maybe two days' journey north of uh, Bethlehem. From Bethlehem to the border of of, uh, Benjamin, from Bethlehem down here, to the border of Benjamin up here in the north, it was only about 20 miles. Now, 20 miles in those days was roughly a day's journey by donkey or foot. Most of you know, of course, that the California missions here that were built along the El Camino Real were spaced one day apart. 30 miles on the average, 30 miles, which was one day's horse ride, you know, just riding on gently on a horse, no galloping or anything of that sort. So we're, we're talking about a day's trip here uh, from, from Bethlehem to the border between Benjamin and uh, Ephraim. So he could have gotten into his own home territory within one full day of travel. From that point, probably it wouldn't have been another, much more than another day's journey to wherever it was he lived because Ephraim wasn't that large an area either. It would seem, as we look at this, for him to have been wiser had he said to the father-in-law, Look, I'm out of here at sunup. No more sitting around eating breakfast and eating lunch and fooling around here until it's late afternoon then I have to stay overnight again. No, I'm going to be out of here. Well, what he does is he waits until the afternoon, apparently late in the afternoon, before he finally leaves. And he probably chose to leave then because he had gotten his resolve up and he had determined he's going to leave and he's going to leave now. And so he picks up his concubine and his animals and his servant and, and, and he, he leaves. The lateness of the hour is indicated by the fact that he had only gone about eight miles, maybe three hours' journey, before he had to turn in for the night. So he obviously got going pretty late in the day. must have been after three o'clock in the afternoon. We don't know what time of the year this was, so that's hard to determine. And they didn't have daylight savings time in those days, of course. Now, Jebus was the name that was applied still at that time to what we know as Jerusalem. Jerusalem was Jebus because it was inhabited by the Jebusites. And although the Jebusites had been defeated by battle in the days of uh, Joshua, the city had not been occupied by Israel. At least the core of the city had not been. So it was still a pagan city. It was still lived in by the Jebusites at the time we're talking about. And it would continue to be so until it was conquered by David. So we're still looking at another hundred or more years before this city will actually become the capital of Israel. Now, they had been traveling for about two hours. When the servant said to the Levite, uh, we probably ought to turn aside here into Jebus and stay the night because it's getting rather late in the day. But the Levite, being a Levite, of course, didn't want to spend the night in a pagan city. He didn't want to turn in and try to find lodging amongst Jebusites because the Jebusites and the Israelites were not exactly on friendly terms, at least, you know, especially not religiously. And so he pressed on. He said, no, we're going to go a little bit further along. Uh, Gibeah and then Ramah beyond that are just up ahead. We can get there before sunset is what he certainly must have said to his uh, servant. Well, they got to Gibeah about the time that the sun was setting. That's what we're told in uh, verse 14. It says, and so they passed along and went their way, and the sun set on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, in verse 14. Now, why did they turn into Gibeah? Why not just keep traveling? I mean, go on, just camp somewhere out in the field. Well, I, I think the answer as to why they couldn't do that is... To go all the way back to verse 1 where it says, now came about in those days there was no king in Israel. And I don't think that just is a statement that there was no king. <clears throat> I mean, that's obvious. Israel did not have a king before Saul was chosen king. They had no king at any point. So what's the point of the statement? The point of the statement is that there was anarchy in the land. It was too dangerous to camp out overnight. There were marauders af- afoot. And so he had to get inside a city in order to safeguard himself and his little group during the night. Now, most of the cities in those days shut their gates as it got dark. Because you leave the gate open when it's dark, you can't see who's going to be coming into the city. So the guards watch, and as soon as it gets too dark for to really to be able to spot somebody far enough away to guard uh, get the gate shut in time, they close the gate. If you're outside, too bad. And so what they chose to do, what he chose to do, was to get inside the city walls of Gibeah because he knew he couldn't make it to Ramah because that was two miles further. would take most of another hour to get there. And so he decided to stay inside the protection of the walls of Gibeah. Now, Gibeah was an Israelite city. We're told here it was Gibeah of Benjamin. Gibeah belonged to the tribe of Benjamin. So it was an Israelite city. He would be amongst, you know, his own people so to speak. Now, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, had been given a a land that was sandwiched in between the large tribe of Judah and the large tribe of Ephraim. So they had a kind of a narrow slot through here which adjoined Dan, which was over here. So Dan and Benjamin were sort of parallel to each other, smaller areas between the larger tribes of Ephraim and Judah. So he's going here to Gibeah. Now, Gibeah today is um, is very identifiable. If you ever go to Israel, you will know when you pass Gibeah because Gibeah is on a very tall hill, and right up smack on top is the unfinished ca- uh, palace of King Hussein of Jordan. Because Gibeah was in Jordan before the 1967 war, and so he was building a palace there, and the, r- the remains of the palace still are standing up there on the top. Uh, it wasn't finished, but it was largely built uh, there on top of the hill at uh, at Gibeah. Gibeah, we discover later on, was the birthplace of Saul, the first king of Israel. Well, when the travelers entered the city, it was sunset. And so we probably looked around for any inns that might exist there. And what the passage tells us is that... Uh, It says, when they entered, they sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them in to his house to spend the night. In other words, no inns, no bed and breakfast, nothing was available to him at that particular time. No one wanted to take these strangers into their home. Now, one of the things that we've already noted, remember going back just a couple of chapters, the story of Micah. Micah took the traveling Levite, a different Levite, of course, into his house, as a a matter of just typical hospitality. But here in the city of Gibeah, nobody was going to take these people in. They're strangers. And that, of course, illustrates that already in Israel, there was a difference between rural Israelites and urban Israelites. The people living in the city were much more suspicious. Who are these people? They don't take them into our house. Uh, Plus the fact that if, if you live in a city, you live amongst many people and there's a certain anonymity there. Somebody else can take care of them. I don't have to because they don't know me anyway and nobody knows that I, did, that I even knew about the problem. And, and so here they are, they're, they're left out in the, the street uh, with no one willing to take them in. Well, the Levite wasn't terribly concerned because he had sufficient provisions. He had enough food for his animals, enough food for him and his concubine and his servants, so he was just going to stay out in the plaza. It was better to stay in the plaza than to be outside the walls. At least you have the perimeter of walls as security against marauders who might attack in the night. So he was just going to sack out in the, uh, in the plaza, you know, toss out his sleeping bag, you know, whatever, throw a little hay in the ground, something, and, and just stay out there in the plaza at night. Well, that, of course we discover, wouldn't have been a good thing to do. Let's read beginning verse 16. Then behold, an old man was coming out of the field from his work that evening. Now the man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was staying in Gibeah. But the men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes, and he saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? And he said to them, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remotest part of the hill country of Ephraim, for I am from there. And I I went to Bethlehem in Judah, but I am now going to my house, and no man will take me into his house. Yet there is both straw and fodder for our donkeys, also bread and wine for me, your maidservant and the young man who is with your servants. There is no lack of anything. The old man said, Shalom, peace to you. Only let me take care of all your needs. However, do not spend the night in the open square. So he took him into his house and gave the donkeys fodder, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. So, should be a nice end to the story, right? Howard Johnson came along and (laughs) took him in. The old man was probably one of the very last persons to enter the city. He was coming in from the field. He knew he had to get inside the uh, city before it got dark. And so he he came in after this Levite and his uh, little party had gotten into the city and had already discovered that there was no room for them anywhere in the city. Now, we're told that the man was living in Gibeah, but that he was from Ephraim. Now, working in the fields. Now, whether he had moved temporarily to Gibeah and was going to go back to Ephraim, none of that's explained. All we're told is that he's living in Gibeah, but he was from Ephraim. From verse 16 and other passages in Scripture, I think we can argue that many of the Israelites had their primary loyalty to their tribe rather than to the nation. Now that is very, very common throughout history. You go to many countries of the world and you find people are more attached to a local region than they are really to the national entity within which they are living. And so it was here. And especially since Israel was not really a state in the modern sense of the word. It was just a collection of tribes living on this land that God had given. And there was no national government of uh, any kind. And so here's this old Ephraimite. He comes into town. He sees these people in the uh, square. So he talks to them. And he discovers that the Levite is from Ephraim. So there's a bonding there. This is also an Ephraimite. Aha, he's a Levite, but he's from Ephraim. That's where he's been living. And so he invites the Levite to come and live at his house. Bring your donkeys and and your concubine and your servant and come into my house. He has compassion on him. He knows what the people of Gibeah are like. He certainly understood that they were in danger if they remained in the street overnight. Now we have to remember that in those days, of course, there was no street lighting. When it was dark... It was dark. It was dark in the city. Most of the time we see movies, right? And in movies you can go through old ancient cities and it's light enough. It has to be light enough or the camera wouldn't get any pictures. But cities weren't really like that. They were very, very dark at night. Absolutely no outside lighting. And so the the man invited, but the Levite protested. I have everything I need here. I have food for the animal, food for us. We could just stay out here in the plaza. No, 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 the man insisted. And I think he explained why. Even though it's not said in this passage, I think he said, it's very dangerous for you to stay in this plaza because we have people in this town who will take advantage of you worse than had you been outside the walls of the city. Well, Levite decided not to argue. And so he accepted the the offer and he went to the old man's house with his concubine, with his servant, with his donkeys. And the man offered general hospitality. We discover he feeds the donkeys... And he provides foot-washing food and drink for the party of three. This man was still thinking rurally, although he was living urbanly. I'd like to skip this rest of the chapter, but we can't. Let's go on at verse 22. While they were making merry, behold, the men of the city, certain worthless fellows, surrounded the house, pounding on the door. And they spoke to the owner of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may have relations with him. And the Hebrew word is intercourse. Then the man, the owner of the house, went out to them and said to them, "No, my fellows, please do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, in other words, he is under my protection, do not commit this act of folly. Here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. Please let me bring them out to you that you may ravish them and do to them whatever you wish but do not commit this act of folly against this man but the men would not listen to him so the man seized his concubine and brought her out to them and they raped her and abused her all night until the morning then they let her go at the approach of dawn as the day began to dawn the woman came and fell down to the doorway of the man's house where her master was until full daylight that sounds like something that you'd read in a trash novel. I think God includes this kind of thing, that we can know how depraved people become when they reject God's word. When they no longer believe that God's word is the only source of truth. When they no longer believe that they, that they live a life that is going to be weighed in the balances by the sovereign creator, God. And we live in a society that has gone that way, as you well know. If you listen to some of these talk shows or these judge shows or anything else today, you discover people are are doing things like this as if it shouldn't even be thought of. I mean, just normal routine of life. That's how far we have gone down the tube. This is one, of course, the most horrifying accounts that you'll find in the pages of the Old Testament or Scripture as a whole. What makes it, of course, more ghastly is that this is not Sodom. This is an Israelite city. These are men of Benjamin, the youngest son of Jacob, by his beloved wife Rachel, Joseph's full-blood brother. According to modern archaeology, the city of Gibeah, the word Gibeah, by the way, means hill, city on a hill, this city or this site was first occupied in the 13th century B.C., which means it wasn't even occupied till Israel was in the land. And so it's very probable that this site had not been a pagan city before, that Israel built Gibeah. What this means, of course, is that the people who lived there couldn't say, well, we've become so depraved because we've inherited the paganism of the pagans who used to live here. Not that that's any excuse, but people would offer it. No, they couldn't even say that because they built it, apparently. Now, it was a great place to build, as I mentioned to you before, a very um, relatively high hill, quite steep, very defensible. One of the reasons it's called Hill, Hill City. The passage emphasizes, I think, a very important point. And that is to be physically descended from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob does not necessarily make one a spiritual descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's a couple of New Testament passages that I'd like to read that that highlight this first in the eighth chapter of the book of John beginning at verse 31 John 8:31 Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, "If you abide in my words then you are truly disciples of mine and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free And they answered him, "We are Abraham's offspring and have never yet been enslaved to anyone How is it that you say, You shall become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. If therefore the son made you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, Therefore you also do the things which you have heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But, it is a, but as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. So Jesus is saying to them, yeah, you claim physical descent from Abraham, but you don't. you are not of Abraham in your spirit. And he calls, he in effect says, implies, you are of your father. And of course, what he's saying is you're of your father, the devil. Paul speaks to this issue too in, in the third chapter of Galatians. Beginning in verse 6, Galatians six, three six, Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So Paul is saying here, too, you know, it's, it's those who are spiritually descended from Abraham that are the true sons of Abraham. That you might have a genetic connection to Abraham is meaningless. So what, what we are finding, of course in this passage, as we look at it, is yes, these are people from Benjamin, and they are descended from Israel, who was the grandson of Abraham. But these people were spiritually as far away from Abraham as you could get. In fact, as we could surmise, they probably would have been more safe in Jebus, the pagan city of Jebus, than they were in the Israelite city of Gibeah. Probably would have been. And yet, they're amongst their own people, The people of God, yes, the people of God. The same people would later would say, oh, well, the temple is in our midst. God couldn't possibly leave us. (laughs) God would even destroy the temple. Well, as we move on through this passage, we've got to look at some kind of gross stuff, and we'll have to pick that up next week. But it gives us very, very important truths uh, to understand, and I think tremendous application to our society in which we live today and all the more reason to pray maybe like we've never prayed before that God will will bring a revival in this land.